together in prayer. Next week, we're going to get a, a special report, we hope, uh, from, uh, from Lois on her recent trip to, to India. And I know I've been reading her ramblings, as she calls them. They're pretty inspiring ramblings and, uh, and musing. Some of you have gotten that as well. But look, really looking forward to that. And especially just the, the windows and insights when you go cross-culturally and you go into another setting. And, um, and so we want to spend some time in prayer, yes, for local concerns and, and personal, but also thinking about God. Our God is a God of the nations and, uh, and hope for the nations we sang about. That is what our God uh, that's what our God wants us to have, hope for the nations, because He is the God of the nations. Let us pray together. O oh God of the nations, we thank You that You love all the peoples of the earth. You know all of the languages. You know all of the cultures. Because, Lord, each of them, in a way, reflects something of your great glory and the diversity. And Lord, while the differences can be things that divide us, Lord, they can also be things that enrich us. And Lord, we just look at creation and all of the diversity and the richness of it. And yet, Lord, uh, it works together in harmony. Because it is following your, when it follows your design, Lord, that you have made. Lord, I think especially of, uh, of India in reading from Lois's report. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for work and faithfulness of people who responded in faith to share the good news, Lord, outside of their comfort zone. And to go even across the world to share the story, Lord, that you, the creator of the earth, have made us and loved us, Lord, with an everlasting love, that you sent your son Jesus for all people. And uh, Lord, I thank you that that good news, when it takes root and when it grows, Lord, it begins to change the world. And we pray, Lord, for believers, I think especially of those in, in India today, I thank you for Jeevan and Shekinah who were here as well and shared and were with Lois in India. I thank you, Lord, that for the, the heart for others that you have placed in their hearts, visions and dreams for how to grow your kingdom. And Lord, for us as well here, I think about uh, uh, St. Lawrence Anglican who is currently hosting the cold, wet weather mat program, the shelter program. Lord, I thank you for the volunteers who are serving each, each day. Lord, we thank you for those that they are hosting. And Lord, we pray that this would be an opportunity, Lord, also to share hope. Lord, as we open up your word today, we pray, Lord, that you would open not only our eyes, but also our hearts. Lord, that we would see you anew. That, Lord, whatever it is that may be discouraging us, or, Lord, that we want to celebrate, Lord, that we would be gripped anew by your greatness, by your glory, by your purity, by your goodness, by your holiness. Lord, that we would love, fall in love even more with you. Amen. I've got an assignment for you this morning. 
It's going to require turning and talking to others and answering the following question that is on the overhead. What is the grandest celebration you have ever experienced? Now, you're thinking, oh, like the, the very best. It, it could be one of the best, okay? Don't get stuck on that, but, or really memorable, but that you've experienced, not just watched on TV or something. It could be a wedding, a graduation, a retirement, a birth of a baby, a promotion, a healing, whatever it is. And, and what impression did it make on you and why? So I'd like you to break into groups of three or four. Just turn around and uh, move outside your comfort zone here and uh, answer that question. I'll give you one more minute. you could wrap that up, that would be great. I know, it's, boy, you guys really did, uh, you took that up. Well, I heard laughter happening there, a lot of interaction, and now it's really hard to rein this back in. Let's just put the pause button, and you can pick up on this after the service and finish that off. Some of you are really rebelling. Okay. Well, many, uh, I had many different uh, experiences come to mind, a 25th uh, wedding anniversary, um, you know, birth of children, uh, etc. Today, we're going to be immersing ourselves in a portion of Scripture that was a great celebration uh, that was celebrated in song, a song that was sung again and again in Israel to remember and celebrate what they considered to be God's greatest victory of all time. Turn to Exodus chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus 15. We'll be reading from there in a moment. 
This song, uh, Song of Moses, as it has often been called, is an appropriate climax to the Exodus. But it is also a summary of the entire book, since it not only summarizes what God has done to bring them out of Egypt, but also what he will do to settle them in their new home in the promised land. And so, let's read Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Eden will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah, meaning bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. 
There the Lord issued a ruling, an instruction for them, and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. I wonder what word or words would you use to describe the tone or mood of this song? I thought of joyful or celebratory, and then I came across one writer who described it as ecstatic excitement, you know, overwhelming happiness and joy. I like that. This is both a song sung to the Lord and about the Lord. He's both the subject and the object. It's a celebration of who he is and why he is so worthy of praise. I don't know if you remember, but back in, in chapter 3, early on in this, Moses and Israel were basically told, when they were told, you know, uh, well, who is this God who's going to deliver us? Basically, he said, watch me and I'll show you who I am. And what they have seen up to this point is nothing short of breathtaking, far beyond anything they could have imagined. They experienced firsthand the Lord delivering them from a hopeless situation. They saw for themselves how he won a great victory by defeating Pharaoh and his cutting-edge military technology. Notice the theme of the opening and closing refrain. It's the same, verse 1 and verse 21. Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both the horse and rider, that is the best of Pharaoh's military, he has hurled into the sea. Part one of this psalm, verses one to, a song, verses 1 to 12, looks back at what, is done, what he has done. Part two, verses 13 to 18, shift from past tense, always has, to future, will, what God will do next. The first part praises God as the victorious champion over Pharaoh, while the second honors him as their leader, their guide, and their king. Let's take a closer look at the first part, which celebrates God's victory from a variety of perspectives. Following the opening chorus of verse 1, verses 2 to 3 are a confession of faith. They confess their faith and trust in the Lord. Notice the language. The Lord is my strength, my defense, my salvation. He is my God and my Father's God. This is personal and relational, which is how our praise and our worship should be. I was thinking this week of uh, black spirituals, which often ask in the midst of a song for, is there a witness to this truth that they're singing about? And sometimes people from the congregation, they will start to sing, I'm a witness. That means, I've experienced that. You just can ask me, I'll tell you. That's true from personal experience. And that's what the Israelites are here doing. In verses 4 to 8, they tell about the mighty acts of the Lord. They kind of retell the story in poetic fashion. But notice the Lord is referred to, he's addressed here not as 
you know, father, as our rock, different ways, but as a warrior. I don't know how if you've ever, have you ever prayed to God, oh, divine warrior? Uh, not too often, but maybe we should. Many people, though, find this reference to the Lord as warrior to be deeply disturbing. It confirms their image of the God of the Old Testament as a God of war, a God of wrath and violence. You know, a sharp contrast to the loving Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that we find in the New Testament. And for some believers, past and present, the image of God as a warrior has been used to endorse their own crusades against whatever enemies are perceived to to deserve annihilation. And both of these responses, you know, revulsed at it, you know, and using this to champion violence, both of these responses are based on superficial and inadequate readings of the biblical text. We do well to ask, why is the Lord described here as a warrior? Because he and he alone defeats Pharaoh and his mighty war machine. Notice also how the Lord defeats them. He uses the forces of nature. You see, as the creator and sustainer of the world, all creation is subject to him. And against such a powerful champion who can control all of creation, the enemy has no chance, and the oppressed never need to worry. And thus there is the call back in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, where God says, stand firm, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. This was God's doing. And notice also that although the song is based on a historical defeat of a particular pharaoh, most of the specifics are absent. And I think that's deliberate. Because this song is ultimately a hymn of praise for God's victory over evil. Evil with a capital E, we might say. As commentator Waldemar Jansen points out, God's unyielding fury unleashed against Pharaoh finds its most proper New Testament comparison in Jesus' unyielding opposition opposition to Satan's demonic realm and victory over it. See, Israel's experience of God's victory over the enemy at the Red Sea, it was life-changing. And it rightly became the basis of their ongoing praise and hope. The victory won by Jesus over Satan is even greater. While it appeared that Jesus had been defeated when he was crucified and killed on the cross, it became the place where God displayed his ultimate power. The power of a a human empire, an army like Pharaoh's, always measures power by the capacity to kill. Notice the clo- verse 9 gives us a close-up of the enemy's mindset and boasting. I will pursue, the enemy is saying. Uh, oops, lost the page here for a moment. I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself, I will draw my sword. They are toast, Right? And I grant that it is a typical feature of God's warfare 
to overcome enemies psychologically by throwing them into a supernatural dread. And we get a window into that in verses 14 to 15 of this song. The nations will hear what has happened. They will fear and tremble. But God's ultimate weapon is ultimately displayed in how he defeated sin and evil on the cross. Satan thought the power to take life, that's the ultimate weapon, the ultimate power. But it was no match for God's power not to take life, but to restore it. It is the resurrection of Jesus that is the ultimate victory over sin and evil. And so, any attempt to use the metaphor of the Lord as a warrior to justify human war is totally misguided and misses the point. Rightly does this song conclude by asking, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And the answer is, no one. No one can come even close. But God isn't finished yet. This is only half the song. The best, it's yet to come. Which is why verses 13 to 18 switch from past tense to future tense. They are anticipating what God will do next. He will say he has saved them, but he will also settle them. He is, uh, it uses the hand of God so often. Basically, it's saying he is a very hands-on God and King who will personally lead and guide his people to their new home with him. We saw that he's camping out with them, pillar of, of uh, cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He's a God who is with his people. And in, in chapter 19, verse 4, he will reflect back and he, they will be at Mount Sinai with the people and, and God will say, you, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That was God's goal, relational. Israel was saved and we are saved for a relationship with God. I like the way Tim Chester puts it in his book. We are saved so that we might enjoy the presence of God and dwell with him. Not only are we saved from the sin of Genesis 3, we are saved to walk with God in the cool of the evening as Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. Restoring that relationship, that's God's goal. And God's people also enjoy his protective presence, which I think is the point of verses 14 to 15, where the nations will tremble before him. And the point is, Micah, in Micah chapter 4, he will have a vision of what God's preferred future is. And each person, he says, will have their own vine and fig tree, and they will basically, they will be able to eat from the fruit of their own labors. And then he says, and no one will make them afraid. You think about how much of Israel's life was lived under fear and terror. This was bullying at a whole different level. Unrelenting. And, and they are singing and celebrating that they will no longer be intimidated and terrorized by their enemies. 
Borrowing another right metaphor, the songwriter declares that God will bring his people in and plant them on his holy mountain. Probably the meaning here is, is like a vine. Isaiah chapter 5 will talk about God as this gardener and he prepares the soil and he plants a vineyard and it, and it goes into detail. And it's a metaphor for his people. He's planted them in the land. And this is the place, at the very place where God has chosen to live and reign on earth. Indeed, the song concludes in a most fitting way in verse 18 with the true glorious king rightfully taking his place and reigning forever and ever with his people. Ultimately, the Exodus is about God and who he is, the one worthy of all praise and worship, who has made it his personal business to set a chaotic, oppressive, sin-torn world straight and right. Indeed, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, also chapter 15, God's people once again are standing beside a sea. This time, at the end of time, they are celebrating God's final, his ultimate victory. And they do it with the renewed version of this song. Look at uh, Revelation 15, verses 2 and following. By this point in, by the way, by this point in Revelation, a cosmic battle has played out on earth as Egypt, Egyptian-like empires have sought to decimate God's people, the church. But God's people, they have this amazing perseverance and persistence because they know how the story will end. Which is why John tells us that those who had been victorious over the beast sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. He connects those two great victories. And the point, as Tim Chester notes, is that the threat to God's people at the Red Sea was one manifestation of this ongoing war. And the defeat of the Egyptian army is therefore a sign of God's overall victory. And so we sing, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. I don't know, does anybody know Petra, one of my favorite rock groups from growing up? They, they put this song, they made a song, these verses into, into song. So I know this one because, uh, you know, I used to sing that while I was working on the farm. Uh, I don't know if anybody, nobody was listening, but it, it, was, it was meaningful and significant to me. Just and true your ways, King of the ages. Who will, not, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? And so, at the end of time, this song will be renewed and sung as the ultimate victory. Now, in true Middle Eastern fashion, this song, we are told in verse 20, included timbrels and dance. Dance. They weren't very Mennonite, I can tell you that. It says, Miriam the prophet took a timbrel in her hand and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing as Miriam sang to them. And I wonder if they were singing back, that everybody was involved in this. Now, this could have been an element of spontaneous rejoicing. But the introduction of Mir Miriam here as a prophet, one of the few times she's called a prophet, and with all the women following her with timbrels and dancing, she has become their worship leader. It suggests some choreography, I think, some liturgy. It's worship with artistry and activity. This is embodied praise. I remember the first time 
when I was pastoring and I agreed to have liturgical dance as part of the worship service. And I thought, we're going to get some pushback here. But we had a, a woman in the church who was, who was gifted in this, and she had done this uh, for years. And, uh, and, we, you know, and I believe in people sharing their gifts and, uh, with the larger church. And so, Kim, I remember what, as Kim danced that morning to a song, it was deeply moving for many of us. It was, I would call it embodied prayer. And it was moving to me, but it was even more moving for a young fellow by the name of Jamie. Jamie was a special needs, a Down syndrome. Jamie was about seven years old. He was regularly in our worship service. But as Kim was up dancing this song, this prayer, Suddenly, Jamie was up dancing with her in the aisle. And I thought, someone is finally speaking his language. Someone is finally speaking his language. And so that became more of a regular part of our service because I realized the importance of embodied prayer, of embodied worship. You see, artistic praise in our own church, even in our own church art gallery. Yes, I think that's an art gallery that's been developing out in the foyer area. It enriches. It enhances. It emboldens at times. And it deepens our faith. And I think we need it. We need it. After the great victory celebration Moses and the Israelites move on in verses 22 to 27. And what is most surprising, at least to me, is how quickly Israel moved from joyfully celebrating God's victory to complaining so bitterly. Three days. The water at Marah was bitter, and so were the people, as they grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Might have been some more colorful metaphors in there than that, but it's a summary. Their whining seems ridiculous and inexcusable until I think about my own life and how quickly I can go from singing about God's love on Sunday morning to whining and complaining days later, actually sometimes hours later. Whining comes naturally to many of us, especially when things don't seem to be going according to our plan, right? According to plan, we say, but it's really our plan. And that could be in our marriages, could be in in our parenting, could be at work, could be in the church. It's not going according to plan. But Moses does what I think they and we should do. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him what to do so that the water became drinkable. You know, was that stick just the right additive? I don't know. Or was it the fact that he simply obeyed? Well, whatever it was, what they learned from the Lord, the Lord had been doing all of this 
had been going on according to plan, according to his plan. Because the difficulty in their journey, we read, was a pop quiz, a test. It was a lesson. Is this a lesson in provision that God can provide, or is it a lesson in healing? I, I think it's, a, it's both. I think ultimately it's a, it's a lesson in trusting him to provide whatever we really need when we need it. So can God heal a bitter relationship so that it becomes refreshing? Can God heal a bitter attitude toward work or toward someone so that we experience gratitude? Can God heal a bitter past that just seems to wear us out and weigh us down? Can God heal? You fill in the blank. I think two lessons at least that I take away from this story. The first one, based on this last part of the story, I think is to ask and trust God to provide what you need, what we need. You know, when an obstacle comes up in our life, maybe this is an opportunity. It would be helpful to ask, Lord, why did you bring this into my life? Or maybe, Lord, what are you wanting to teach me? What are you wanting to teach me? And if we begin to open ourselves that maybe God has a purpose, it's not going according to my plan the way I've mapped it out, but maybe this is going according to God's plan. In fact, it probably is. And then I begin to look, watch, who, is, who might he bring in my path? Or how he plans to provide. It could be financially, physically, spiritually, or relationally. I think relationally, I'll never forget, uh, this is years ago, our... Yeah, it's, I'll say our daughter Jessica, I forgot to pass this with her approval before, but she was kindergarten at the time. We had a community group, Bible study meeting in our home. We had three young kids. She's the oldest. And our kids, you know, they would be, uh, we'd kind of try to put them to bed, and then we would get on with our Bible study. And then during the prayer time, all of a sudden, Jessica showed up. And she had a prayer request for our group. She wanted us to pray that she would have a friend. Because she was at kindergarten and she was having a lot of trouble finding a friend. And so we prayed for her. I have to say, I don't know that I had a lot of faith on that. I was just kind of caught off guard, but it's like she's asking for it. And that week... They were taking the same route, but they bumped into somebody else on the way, Megan. And they became great friends, and we became, ended up becoming friends with this family, inviting them to church, becoming, going camping with them. You know, ask and trust God to provide what you need, whatever age you are at. And then watch for how he's going to provide, what he's going to do. 
And secondly, sing. Sing. Sing a lot. It helps enrich, express and enrich our faith. Uh, we were singing a few old Veggie Tales tunes this morning <laughs> over breakfast. Um, you know, what we sing can have a tremendous influence on how we think or behave. It can change our attitudes, which is why the content also of singing of what we sing is so important. Singing has a way not only of reflecting or changing how we're feeling or thinking, it also helps us to connect with God in prayer, in worship. And just how important songs and singing are for our faith can be seen in the fact that Israel's songbook, did you know that they unearthed Israel's songbook? Ancient Israel's songbook. They found it right in the middle of our Bible. Yeah, the Psalms. I don't know how I missed that growing up for years. You know, we always had a separate, we had the Bible and we had a hymn book. And when I was really young, we also had one in German, but I didn't understand that one. But then I realized, you know what? In the Bible, it's right in there. This must be really important. It is because what we are singing of all the experiences in life, we learn to, to pray and to sing these back to God. And the Psalms aren't just squeezed into the Psalms, the book of Psalms, like Exodus 15 is a Psalm, right? And we find these occurring when something happens to people, either they're grieving or they're celebrating, so often they borrow the language from the Psalms. Jonah, what does he do when he's in the belly of that big fish? He prays. And what does he pray? He prays words from the Psalms. Very, they, they shaped and they gave expression. And in the New Testament, Colossians 3.16, Paul will say, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And so, a little homework for you this week is to sing. You, know, you can sing, you know, while you're commuting to work. I don't know how the other commuters on the train will think about that, but... I'm thinking, you know, in a setting when you are with others this week. It doesn't have to be on the, you know, commuting on the train or the bus. Maybe it's in a small group that you're a part of. Maybe as a family. Or maybe you think, no, we're terrible singers. We'll find somebody, invite somebody else over who's good singers. Whatever it is, sing together in a setting where you are with others this week. And it doesn't have to be a complicated song. I remember visiting an elderly lady from our congregation who passed away now years ago. But uh, she was in a care home. And she would see, she would get discouraged, but she saw people were more discouraged than her. She was confined to a wheelchair, but she saw some people who couldn't even get out of the bed. And so she would go to them and she would visit with them and she would sing songs that she had learned <laughs> when she, scripture songs, many of them, when she was in Sunday school and when she taught Sunday school. I'll never forget that. I thought, my, oh my, we have a pastor, a full-time pastor in the care home here. And uh, she was using those songs to bring spiritual encouragement and, and nurture to others. And so uh, I want you to sing together in a setting this week. Um, with others. Let's pray. I want to invite the worship team up as we pray.
Oh, Lord, I thank you for the gift of song, for gifted songwriters who help us to express and enrich our faith in you and to worship you, to pray to you, to pray to you not only, you know, the celebratory things in life, but also the hard things in life. When we feel forsaken and abandoned, Lord Jesus, you prayed that very psalm from the cross. And you also sang a hymn with your disciples. Lord, we pray that you would also help us to express our faith. Lord, with others, whether it's sharing maybe a line from a song or sharing a song and inviting people to to listen to that for themselves or the words of a song. Lord, we thank you that you are the great God and that this song of victory is not just one that is sung in the past, but Lord, we see that it is a song that we will sing together with all your people at the end of time when you have indeed set all things right. Lord, we look forward with a longing to that day. Amen.